We are in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 8 is where we are tonight. Matthew chapter 8. And we're going to begin reading in verse 5 and down to verse 13. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, down to verse 13. Let's begin reading Matthew chapter 8 and verse 5. It says, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled, and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the self-same hour. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Major Karl Plegger was a Nazi army officer serving in Vilnius, Lithuania during World War II. During the summer of 1941, the Nazis murdered over 57,000 Jewish people in that area. But Plega felt that having created this monster, it was his duty to save the imperiled Jews. So when word reached Plega of the impending liquidation of Vilnius and of the Jewish ghetto there, he swiftly set up a motor repair shop and uh, sought to repair military vehicles. And he shepherded in about 1,000 Jews to work in that shop. Some of those men were genuine workers. They were genuinely mechanics, but many were not. Others were hairdressers and academics and kitchen staff and the elderly. He told the SS that they were all skilled mechanics. He also insisted that they ought to allow the women and children, the wives and the children, to come in so that they could keep up the morale of the essential workers. His story is really not unlike that of Oscar Schindler, except that he was a Nazi officer. Of the 60,000 Jews who lived in Vilnius before the war, 95% were murdered. Of the rest, Major Karl Plega, a German officer, and a Nazi saved hundreds. And his name today is inscribed in Jerusalem at Yad Vashem in the avenue known as the uh, Righteous Among the Nations. He is honored today, a Nazi officer, honored by the Jewish people for his efforts to protect them during World War II. Stories like that grip us. 
This high-ranking officer had much to lose in showing such sympathy to the Jewish people. He risked his own life to save others. Here was a man who was prepared to swim against the tide of his time to do that which was right. And the man at the heart of our reading tonight is similarly just such a man. We simply know him as a centurion. We don't have his name, but mark it down. His name is recorded in heaven as one of the righteous among the nations. He was an officer of the hated Roman army of occupation. But he stood apart from all the other Roman officers in that vicinity because he cared for his Jewish neighbors and was humble and contrite in his spirit both toward them and toward their God. Let's get a little bit more background tonight on this account as we look to the Gospel of Luke for a moment. Luke chapter 7 And we want to read a parallel passage beginning in verse 1. Luke's Gospel, the 7th chapter and verse 1. And we read, Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus... He sent on to him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. But say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant do this, and he doeth it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent returning to the house found the servant whole that had been sick. Now the first thing I want you to see tonight is the concern of this man for his servant. The concern that he had. In Matthew's Gospel, in verses 5 and 6, we read of that concern. We read that there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. Now, here we are at a point where Jesus is coming down from the mountain, having spent the uh, previous hours preaching and teaching the people in the Sermon on the Mount. He's heading back toward Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was the hometown of Jesus. He was, of course, born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth, but he lived in his adult years in the town of Capernaum. In fact, he did many of his miracles in the town of Capernaum. But surprisingly, the people of Capernaum did not accept his message, nor indeed the authentication of his ministry by means of miracles. And ultimately, they suffered his condemnation. But on this day, as he approaches the town, the Lord was met by a delegation of Jewish elders. I don't know if you picked that up. We read Luke's gospel there, but it said that there was a group of Jewish elders that came out 
to meet the Lord. And uh, although Matthew tells us that the centurion approached the Savior, Luke explains that he did so by proxy, stating he sent unto him the elders of the Jews beseeching him. Now, knowing the tension there is and was between Jews and Gentiles, and in particular between Roman soldiers and the occupied people of Israel, he presumably thought that it was best that he didn't go in person to see this Jewish rabbi, that he sent others on his behalf who might well be better acquainted with him and who might use their influence to get him to come. And it says something for his character that the high that the, that the elders of Israel considered him in such high esteem that they went and represented this Gentile to the Lord Jesus. Remember, they were already suspicious of Jesus. They were already critical of Jesus. And yet here they were swallowing their pride to go and ask of Jesus a miracle. To go and ask of this one whom they thought was a charlatan a favor and that on behalf of a Gentile. So that tells you something of the high regard in which this centurion was held by his neighbors. Now his concern was not for himself. It was for his slave. And if you understand in that time Roman slaves were, well, they were cheaply bought. They were a commodity. They weren't even considered as people. They were considered like livestock, like animals. And you could treat them effectively as an animal. The only difference between an animal and a slave in Roman times was that a slave could speak and an animal could not. But their masters could uh, treat them poorly. They could ill-treat them. They could even kill them uh, with impunity if they so choose. And yet the relationship between this man and his slave is altogether different. He says, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy grievously tormented. Now Matthew uses a very interesting word for the word servant. It's the Greek word pais. And it's the word for a child or a boy. Someone who has not grown into adulthood. Someone who is still in a place of immaturity. But Luke uses an altogether different word. He uses the word doulos, which is the word for a slave. And so he tells us that not only is he a slave, but this boy was a born slave. One who had voluntarily committed himself and his life to the service of this Roman centurion. So in modern terms, we might consider this centurion as a foster parent or as an adopted, adoptive parent. His relationship with this child was certainly one of affection. Luke tells us that he was, and these are his words, dear unto him. He loved this boy. He loved having this child around him. He was precious to him. He was valued by him. And uh, you know the boy, I presume, loved him because he voluntarily waived his own liberty in order to serve this centurion, to stay in his house, to be under his roof and to be under his uh, care. So there was a very close relationship between the two. Now the child is lying sick and he is is dying. He had suffered a paralysis. That's what the word palsy indicates. He had been paralyzed by some illness. He was in great torment. He was in fear for his life. In fact, he was in the throes of dying. He was suffering spiritually. He was suffering physically as a consequence of this illness. And the centurion was in despair. Yet he knew of Jesus. You say, well, how did he know? How did this Roman soldier know about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there had already been a very high-profile healing in that town. Look in the Gospel of John with me, if you will. 
the Gospel of John, and chapter 4. Let's begin reading in verse 46. It says, So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Notice that. And when he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went on to him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The nobleman said unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. By the way, if you take account of what he said there, it indicates that the nobleman's journey back to Capernaum had been delayed somehow, some way, which would suggest that he had every confidence his son had been healed. He was no longer concerned for the boy's well-being. It wasn't a day's journey from where he was to Capernaum. Uh, and so he evidently stopped off somewhere along the, the way. He said, when was he healed? He said, yesterday about this time. So he'd taken a whole day getting back to his own home. And so he says, yesterday about the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believeth, and his whole house. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was, to, when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. So there's no question that this Roman soldier had heard about the healing of the nobleman's son. Remember, he was well-favored in that time. People liked him. People represented him. People knew him. He was a high-profile figure, as would have been the nobleman. And so he would have heard, no doubt, of the healing of the nobleman's son. And having heard of the healing of one child, he thought to himself, well, I'm going to go and find this Jesus, and I'm going to ask of him for my child, for this boy who's under my care. Now notice in chapter, chapter 8 of Matthew, in verse 7, the compassion of the Lord. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. Now, to us reading those words today in the 21st century, they don't really seem that remarkable. Because, first of all, we know the Lord and we expect these things from him. But you've got to put yourself in the shoes of those who first heard the Lord make this statement. Because it would have raised a few eyebrows. You say, well, well, why? He, well, he said, I will come and heal him. And the emphasis there is on the word I. He said, I will come and heal him. And he's saying that unlike the Pharisees, who would have had nothing to do with a Gentile, who wouldn't have dared to enter the home of a Gentile, he was willing to come and heal this boy and minister unto him. That's what the word heal means there. In other words, he's breaking with Jewish tradition. He's breaking with culture. He's breaking with religious taboos. He is breaking with cultural moors. And sometimes we need to remember that God calls us sometimes to step outside of our religious comfort zone in order to minister to people. I remember many years ago I was preaching in a city mission in the city of Belfast. And I used to go there regularly to preach. It was a gospel mission and for men and it was held in the afternoons during the week. 
and I would preach there with great regularity. In fact, I always remember it with fondness because the group of men, there was probably about 20, 25 men who would attend this meeting. Many of them were not Christians. Uh, but what was funny is most of them were called Billy. And so uh, I'd ask, well, who are you? And he'd say, I'm Billy. And I'd ask somebody else, and he was Billy, and this one was Billy. And then I'd come back, you know, a month or two later to preach again, and then somebody'd say, did you hear Billy died? <laughs> I should think, well, you're all Billy. I don't know which one Billy it is. I had to kind of try and figure it out. But nevertheless, I would go to this mission, and I would preach, and the missionary there was a godly, godly man, a brother by the name of Lloyd Watson. And uh, one day uh, after the meeting, Lloyd and I were standing outside the mission hall and we were just fellowshipping with each other and the undertaker showed up. And the undertaker knew Mr. Watson and so he said to him, Mr. Watson, I wonder could you help me? He says, yes, what is it? He says, there's a man has passed away. He's never attended church in his life. He has no church membership. He's never been baptized or christened or anything. He said, but he's passed away, and in his will, he specifically requested that he should have a church funeral. He says, I've inquired of all the churches in the area, and no minister will take the service because he wasn't a member of their church. And Mr. Watson looked at his diary and at the day in which the funeral was supposed to take place. And he, he said, I'm sorry, I already have a funeral that day. And I said, well, look, I'm a pastor. I'll take the funeral. I'll do the funeral for him. And, uh, and so they said, okay, they were happy with that. And, and lo and behold, wasn't it the father of the woman who lived directly across the street from me? Isn't that amazing? I mean, whenever I went and knocked on her door, she said, I completely forgot you were a pastor when I was looking for a pastor. Uh, she said, I should have asked you first. But, uh, you know, it was an opportunity for me to witness to that family that lived right across the road. Literally, their window looked into our window across the street. But, you know, the idea that there were ministers who had the, uh, had the ability to do something for this family, who had an opportunity to reach out and to touch this unsaved home. You know, I remember going and speaking to the family, and I sat down with this woman, and I said, tell me about your father. Just tell me something that I can say about him in the eulogy. She said, well, he used to like drinking. <laughs> I said, well, okay. I said, give me something else. She says, well, he loved smoking. I thought, well, this is going to be a strange funeral. He said, I said, is there anything else here? She says, yes, he liked gambling. I thought, this is not going well, is it? And so, you know, I got to take the funeral, I said, it's fair to say that he wasn't a, he wasn't a church-going man. <laughs> but, but, you know, here's the thing. What an opportunity was missed. Why? Because of church traditions. And the Lord Jesus, he comes along and he goes beyond that. He, he steps beyond religious tradition and religious behavior. And he reaches out to touch people. You know, last time we were together in this gospel, we saw how he healed a leper. Now we find him ministering to a Gentile. Later we will see him reaching out to a woman. Charles Swindle says of this moment that if the presence of the leper was a crowd splitter, then the dealings with the Gentile soldier was a crowd stopper. Don't underestimate the importance of what you're reading here. This is a jaw-dropping moment in that society. Jews simply didn't mix with Gentiles. And they definitely didn't enter into their homes. And so Jesus really catches their attention when he says, I will come. doesn't matter what they're doing. 
doesn't matter what the other rabbis are doing. It makes no difference to me what the Jewish tradition is. I don't care what they think. I will come and I will heal him. I will minister unto him. You see, he wasn't concerned about popular opinion or religious tradition. He was concerned for people. And he's always concerned for people. And you see in this passage that he loved people, even those who were outcast because of their condition, leprosy, or those who were outcast because of their cultural background, Gentiles, or those who were outcast because of their gender, women. The Lord Jesus was reaching out to all of them. And friends, we need to do that as a church. There should be no one that we're unwilling to meet with and reach out to and seek to share the gospel with. It doesn't matter who they are or what they've done or what color their skin is or what their background is or what gender they are or whatever gender they want to identify with in this crazy age. It makes no difference. At the end of the day, we're called upon to bring the gospel to all and to touch the lives of those who are lost. Now, notice the character of this man. We thought about his concern. We see the Lord's compassion. Notice his character in verse 8. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I, saw, and I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant do this. And he doeth it. Now the centurion's response, when he hears that Jesus is on his way to his front door, is very telling. We see something of the character of man. And, and, and I want you to, the character of this man I should say, and I want you to understand, if you're going to move the Son of God on your behalf, if you're going to move heaven on your behalf, if you're wanting to get the ear of the Lord, you need to learn something from this particular individual. You know, here was a man who was, first of all, a centurion. Centurions were the backbone of the Roman army. Every centurion you meet in Scripture, think about this, every centurion you meet in Scripture is a noble person. Every single one of them. Now, the Roman army was divided into legions, and a legion contained uh, some 6,000 soldiers. And those 6,000 soldiers were broke down into groups of 100, over which was placed a centurion. A centurion was a soldier of long standing, a man with good service, uh, with, a, with a good record in the Roman army, a man who had the respect and the ear of his fellow soldiers. They were hard men, make no doubt about it. Roman centurions were not softies. You didn't get to be to that position because you were unwilling to hurt people. They were happy to hurt people in the interest of the empire if called upon. He was a hard man. It was their job to see that those Roman soldiers maintained discipline. You know, if you're a, an officer in any army and you have soldiers beneath you, you have to be a pretty tough guy to handle that group of men that are under your watch, haven't you? And so uh, these soldiers were the very glue that held the fighting units of the Roman army together. Now when he hears Jesus is on his way, he's shocked. He's not expecting this at all. Why? Well, because even though he's a man of position, 
he recognizes that Christ is in a higher position. And in the Roman army, high-ranking officers simply didn't deign themselves to mix with those beneath them and certainly didn't dabble with the mundane of everyday uh, service life. They lived a privileged life. And so he thought to himself, well, why would the Lord come and speak to me? Why? You know, he's higher than I am. He certainly shouldn't be coming to my house. And so he considered himself unworthy. Notice his word there. He said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof. Literally, he said, I'm not fit that you should come under my roof. Now think about it. Here's a man whose superiors considered him worthy enough to be promoted to the position of a centurion. Here was a man whose whose neighbors and whose uh, who the elders of Capernaum esteemed so highly that they were willing to go on his behalf and represent Christ for him. Here was a man who had shown kindness to the Jews and paid for their synagogue in Capernaum so that they said of him that he was worthy for whom thou should do this. That was their testimony. They said if anybody deserves a healing, he deserves a healing. If anybody deserves to be helped, this man deserves to be helped because he built our synagogue in Capernaum. Some of you who went to Israel stood in that synagogue, if you remember. Uh, it's the one with the black basalt uh, foundations. And we preached there in the synagogue at Capernaum. But, uh, you know, here were these people and they thought him worthy. His bank would have thought him worthy. Listen, if you can afford single-handedly to build a place of worship, I think you've got money in the bank, don't you? You know, you think about our building. You know, we didn't have one person among us who could put their hand in their pocket and say, oh, don't worry, I'll take care of the whole bill. It took a collective effort and the grace of God uh, to erect this building. And, and yet with all, here was a man who came along and built a synagogue. Single-handedly, a wealthy man. So his bank manager would have said, well, if anybody's worthy of a healing, you know, he's your man. He's got a few bob in the bank. His neighbors must have thought him worthy because there's no doubt that being a wealthy man, he probably owned one of the nicer houses in town. He probably lived in one of the nicer neighborhoods in the city of Capernaum. The child concerning, he was concerned about considered him worthy. Otherwise, he would never have bonded with him. He would never have gave up his freedom to come in under his roof. Everybody thought highly of him but himself. Of himself, he said, I am not worthy. You know, friends, when it comes to the things of God, it matters not one whit what other people think about you. It doesn't matter what other people say about you. It doesn't matter whether you have a great reputation in the community or not. It makes no difference if they're giving you awards as a special citizen of some kind. Listen, none of that holds any sway with God. It's only when you come to the place where you recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord and you say before God, I am not worthy. That God is now ready to move on your behalf. You see, you have to rid yourself of all your pride, and all your position, and all your standing. You have to acknowledge that he is Lord, and you are just a sinner, deserving of nothing but the sure judgment of God. He was humble. 
Lord, I'm not fit that thou shouldest come under my roof. You know, there's an old saying, isn't there, Lord, an old song, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. And it is hard to be humble. I think the greatest stumbling block to the salvation of many people is their inability to humble themselves and to admit that they are sinful, to acknowledge that they're not good enough before God and not ready for heaven. And yet it's not until we see ourselves as we really are, as God sees us, not how others estimate us, but how God sees us. It's, it's only then when we stop believing our own publicity and start believing what the Bible says about us that we're on the grounds of salvation. You know, I like the story of the old preacher Harry Ironside, Dr. Ironside, and uh, he was a very well-known preacher, but he felt at one time that he wasn't humble enough. And so he confided in a friend, and he said, look, I, I feel like I lack humility. I, I need to be more humble. And so his friend said this, well, why don't you make a sandwich board with the plan of salvation written on it and wear it as you go through the downtown Chicago for a whole day? So Ironside followed his advice. He made himself a sandwich board. He wrote on it the plan of salvation. And he walked down the, uh, down the inner city part of Chicago for a day. It was for him a humiliating experience. As he returned home, he took off the sandwich board and he caught himself thinking, there's not another person in Chicago who would be willing to do a thing like that. <laughs> You see how easily pride creeps up on us? Yet the Bible says, God resisteth the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The Bible says, The Lord is nigh or near unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such, excuse me, <coughs> saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. God says, Listen, you've got to humble yourself. God sends no one away empty but those who are full of themselves. But speak the word only, this man said. Lord, you don't have to come to my house. Speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. You see, he not only had humility, but get this, he had faith in the word of God. He says, Lord, you don't even need to be there. Just you speak the word. You say what needs to be done. And it will be done. He understood authority. He understood the hierarchy of authority. He thought about his own position, his own relationship with his senior officers and subordinates. And he saw that Jesus was the greater between the two of them. And he didn't need to be there to help him. He simply had to speak the word. He understood long before Paul ever wrote it down that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that's what saves a soul. Not your reputation. Not your position. Not any of that. It's not how highly others think of you. It's whether you will humble yourself and take God at his word in simple faith believing. And people have always been and will always be saved that way. We'll notice the cure in verse 10. The cure. It says, when Jesus heard it, he heard him say these things, he marveled and said to them that followed, 
Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into utter darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so it be done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Now I want you to soak in those words that he marveled. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. In fact, there's only twice in Scripture that the Lord Jesus is said to have marveled. Here in the town of Capernaum, uh, in the case of this particular centurion, and also in the unbelief, in a contrasting setting, in the unbelief of the people of Nazareth. He marveled at their unbelief. Uh, but, you know, what was it he was marveling? Well, he was marveling at this man's faith. And, you know, it's again, only twice in the Gospels do we find the Savior commending someone for having great faith. He commends this man for his faith, and he commended the Syrophoenician woman for her faith. Interestingly, both of those people are Gentiles. He commends them for their faith. And what he is saying here as he continues down, he says to them, look, understand this, I have not found so great a faith. No, not in Israel. He's not talking about Israel geographically. He's talking about Israel in terms of the nation, in terms of the people, in terms of the descendants of Abraham. He says, I haven't found faith like this among the descendants of Abraham. There's no one in the, in the nation of Israel who has such a faith as this Gentile centurion has. And so he says, there's, there's coming a day when many shall come from east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You, you think about that. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, the way of faith is open to all people of all nationalities, whether they be Jews or will they be Gentile? Will they be male or will they be female? Will they be bond or will they be free? That all may come. You see, the faith that pleases God is not an exclusive elitist thing reserved for the religious crowd. It's not reserved for the clergy, so-called. It's not the monopoly of, of bishops and archbishops or pastors or priests or popes or anybody else. No, here's the thing. No one gets into heaven on the strength of their religious affiliation or denominational association. Listen, if you've got the idea that heaven's full of Baptists, think again. We're going to have to rub shoulders with some of those pesky Presbyterians. And some of those mad Methodists. Maybe even one or two Catholics, you never know. You just don't know who you're going to be rubbing shoulders with in heaven. But the idea that it's just going to be us, the Baptists. No, God isn't a Baptist. And as if to underscore the point that he's making, Jesus says that many shall come from east and west, shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But notice, he says, the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Abraham knew it was a very common belief at that time that in the day of Israel's redemption, when the Messiah should come to restore the nation, that he would hold a banquet for the Jewish people. There would be a great feast and all the patriarchs would come, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they would sit down at this great feast and as would indeed all the other heroes of the Jewish faith. But the one thing they were sure about was this, there would be no Gentiles at that feast. None. So when Jesus said, listen, I'm going to tell you something. I have not seen faith like this in Israel. And there's going to be people coming from the east and the west, coming from the Gentile world, who are going to sit down in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And some of the children of the kingdom, some of those who should be in this place, are going to be cast out into outer darkness. That was an absurdity in the ears of of his hearers. They thought it was a crazy statement. You know, it just simply wasn't possible in their minds. And yet Jesus said that it was. In fact, the Old Testament teaches that it is. Malachi the prophet in chapter 1 and verse 11 said this, For from the rising of the sun, even to the going down of the sea, and my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. Revelation describes the multitude as 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Not only that, but the children of the kingdom are going to be cast out. Some of them are going to be cast out. Unbelievers are going to be cast out. Those who should have been coming into the kingdom, those unto whom the oracles of God had been given, those who had enjoyed a position of privilege in terms of their history and their religion and their culture, those who should have recognized him as the Messiah and should have believed in him and should have been destined for a seat at his table were going to be cast out into outer darkness and there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Dr. Paisley was once preaching on this text. He came to that bit where he said, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And a little woman on the front row said, in a gummy voice, what happened if you've got no teeth? <laughs> and Dr. Paisley said, teeth will be provided. <laughs> well, we laugh about that, but it's not really a laughing matter, is it? Gnashing of teeth for the children of the kingdom. You know, in these few words of Jesus, we see a little bit of what the kingdom is actually like. When you think about it, it has to be a kingdom of rest. Because he says, many shall come and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That kingdom is a kingdom of rest. That kingdom is a kingdom of good company. Look at the company you're keeping. Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob. What, can you imagine if you're, if you're fortunate enough to be sitting across the table from Abraham? Or to talk to Jacob? or any of the other great figures of the Old Testament, it's going to have the most marvelous company. It's a kingdom with many people. Jesus said that many will come. It's not restricted to a few chosen. 
It's a global kingdom. For he says people shall come from the east and the west. They'll come from all over the earth. And it's a kingdom of surprises because he tells them that there will be Gentiles there and there will be Jews who you might expect to be there who are not going to be there. And friends, that's how it's going to be in the kingdom. When we get to the kingdom, there will be people there that you never thought you would see there and there will be other people absent who you expected to be there. And actually what this is, is a shot across the bow of Pharisaism. For Jesus was telling these men, whom he's just preached about in chapters 5, 6, and 7, he's telling them that as things stand, they're not going to make it into the kingdom. But it was... unto me who are Gentiles. And the Lord was telling us that whatever your background, whether you, whether you are indeed a child of Abraham or whether you come from the east or the west, as long as you exercise faith in me, you have a place in the kingdom. You will have a place accorded you. You'll be able to sit down there with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and see the reign of the Messiah of Israel. And what it tells us is that whatever your background, he is willing to reach out to you. This is the lovely thing of this chapter, isn't it? I mean, that leper, he touches him. This Gentile, he says, I will go to your house. Later on, he deals with Peter's mother-in-law, a woman, and heals her. He's willing to reach out to you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've come from, no matter how you feel about yourself, he's willing to touch your life. And when you think about it, this centurion, well, really, he had every reason not to come to Jesus. For a start, he was a professional soldier. Christ is the Prince of Peace. Not only that, of course, he was a Roman and Jesus was, a, was an Israelite. He was a Gentile. Jesus was a Jew. But this soldier had one thing going for him. It was his simple humility and his faith. And his approach really reminds us that the true children of the kingdom are not those who are physically born to Abraham. The true children of the kingdom are not those who have physical ties to some group or to, uh, to another. No, no, no. Those who belong to the kingdom are those who are born again. Jesus said, except you be born again, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who come to Christ believing, who are regenerated by the Spirit of God as a consequence of their simple faith in Christ and humility and acknowledging their sinfulness before him, teach us tonight. You know, maybe you're here this evening, or maybe you're watching online, and you're thinking, well, what about me? Where do I stand? Will I be able to sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom? Well, for sure you can, if you will do as this man did. Humble your heart in the sight of God. Acknowledge that Christ is Lord over you, and exercise faith in his word believing that he and he alone has the power to save.
And when the kingdom dawns, you'll be able to walk up to a table that will have your name at the place setting. What a joy that will be. Amen? May God bless you and help you tonight as we think about these things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you tonight for your great love wherewith you loved us. We thank you, Lord, that we as Gentiles have not been cast off, that we've not been cut out of the kingdom, that the Lord Jesus is more than willing to come into our homes and into our hearts, that he is the one who is, who is indiscriminate in his dealings with men, who is, who is not one who favors one group above another, not the Jew above the Gentile, not the Baptist above the Presbyterian or any other kind of division that we care to name. Lord, we're so glad tonight that you're a God who is, treats men without favor of person, without respect of person. And Lord, anybody can come. Anybody can humble their heart before thee, call out and express their need, and expect a positive answer from your throne. Lord, I pray if there's someone in this meeting hall tonight, someone here who thinks maybe like a Jew thinks, well, I'm a church member, I'll be okay. I'm baptized, I'll be okay. I'm a Baptist, I'll be fine. Help them to see the folly in that, Lord. Help them to see that they need to be saved. But Lord, maybe somebody is watching at home right now. Somebody who's not a Christian. Someone who's maybe even tuned into this service quite by accident. Help them to see tonight, Father, that they're welcome in your kingdom. If they will come admitting themselves a sinner, humbling themselves before you, and acknowledging Christ as their Savior. Help them to do that even this very hour. We pray that heaven might rejoice tonight over one sinner who repents and comes to Christ. Lord, what a joy it'll be when we enter the kingdom. Maybe we won't sit down by Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. But could it be, Father, that we might sit down beside a certain centurion who was posted to the town of Capernaum, who was concerned for his little servant boy and whose name is accounted among the righteous of the nations. Lord, we pray that our names are written there also and that we will be seated at that table by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's sing our final.